Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 77th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we have an incredibly special guest who has been instrumental in advancing clean energy policy in the state and someone who you might not have expected from the outset. His work to bring House Bill 951 to fruition is now in full force as the North Carolina Utilities Commission is set to begin expert witness hearings next week to determine the final plan on how to achieve 70% carbon emissions reductions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. Before we talk to our guests, though, we have a few announcements to share. Okay, we've mentioned this before, but now is seriously the time to register for Making Energy Work. What is it, you ask? Well, NCSEA is hosting a regional conference coming up October 25th through the 27th in Raleigh, focused on clean energy policy and regulation. And just this week, we announced the agenda, which will include panels on the carbon plan, transmission planning, the current state of the rooftop solar market, transportation electrification, customer clean energy programs, and so much more. We also have some special keynote speakers planned as well. And we're also partnering with a number of great organizations to host some pre-conference events including a workshop hosted by the North Carolina Department of Commerce, the North Carolina Governor's Office, the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, and the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center, called Building North Carolina's Clean Energy Workforce. And then, our partners at E2 and the Chambers for Innovation and Clean Energy are hosting a workshop titled The Economic Case for North Carolina Offshore Wind. So, make sure to register for the conference and these workshops today at makingenergywork.com. Before we make it into the show, today's episode is brought to you by Kilpatrick Townsend and Stockton, LLP. As your business navigates the fast-changing and complex energy sector, Kilpatrick Townsend can guide you through the myriad of rules and regulations around developing or financing clean alternative energy sources and implementing sustainable energy programs and practices. Kilpatrick Townsend's attorneys understand the energy industry and are passionate advocates for the success of their clients. For more information, visit kilpatricktownsend.com. North Carolina for some time now has been referred to as one of the most purple states in the country, where the electorate has been split between Democrats and Republicans at the state and federal level. This is especially true when you look at the combination of a Democratic governor and a Republican-led legislature. With this split, many would think it'd be hard to accomplish any sweeping legislative priorities. While North Carolina was able to make some significant strides in clean energy policy last year with the passage of House Bill 951. And this was done in a bipartisan fashion due in large part to the leadership of our Republican guest on today's episode. So with that, let's talk to today's guests to hear more about their journey to supporting clean energy in the process involved in getting House Bill 951 to the governor's desk. Clean energy. Today's guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast has established himself as one of the foremost conservative leaders in the North Carolina General Assembly as a member of the House of Representatives. Prior to his time in office, our guest served in the United States Army from 1976 to 1996, 
reaching the rank of colonel, which brought him down to Fayetteville, North Carolina. He has gone on to own and operate several successful small businesses in the mortgage industry. He was originally elected to the General Assembly and assumed office back in 2013. During his time in the House, he's taken on multiple committee leadership roles, including as the chair of the Energy and Public Utilities Committee. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Representative John Zoka to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Representative Zoka, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So to start things off, for our listeners, you've been serving as a member of the North Carolina General Assembly since 2013. But prior to that, you had a long career in the military and then working in the mortgage industry, which we were talking about just a little bit before we started recording here. So what initially compelled you to run for state office in North Carolina? The thing that compelled me to run for office was I had started a business. I actually had two businesses going. I owned a mortgage company and I had a marketing company. And um, I was pretty much doing my own taxes. And at the end of the month, uh, we were making money. Both companies were doing real well, but it comes time to pay myself. So I pay all my employees send all the taxes to the state and the federal government. And then it's like, that was a lot. <laughs> you know, it's like, why am I paying them all that money? And um, it just was a lot. And I, I thought this isn't right. So I really started looking into it, into uh, what our tax rates were for the different things. Uh, and, and it just, it, I was kind of ticked off really, is how much I was paying in taxes, what I felt that I wasn't getting a whole lot back. And then I talked to more people and talked to some politicians and either talked to the right guys or the wrong guys. And they convinced me, it's like, well, with an attitude like that, you ought to run for office. Can you change it? And I said, well, I don't know. I'd sure like to try. So they kind of talked me into running for office. And, and then I ran and I'd never run for anything before. I mean, I have voted in every election since I was 18 years old. So in that sense, I've been politically active. But in terms of um, me running for office. The first run I had was for the North Carolina House of Representatives. And I can I can relate a little bit. I, I remember my first job out of college, looking at my first paycheck coming in. I was I was so excited about the the salary, and then I saw my paycheck, and I said, "Holy smokes, what happened to everything here?" Um, so, so I can totally relate to that. Uh, I am curious. Um, you know, I, I, I talked about just a minute ago that you also had a long career in the military. Uh, so what aspects of your previous military experience did you take with you into your role as a House representative here in North Carolina? And, and that's a great question. You know, what you learn in the military uh, is quite a bit. You learn to think on your feet. You learn that the mission comes first. And you learn that as long as the mission is accomplished, it doesn't matter who gets the credit, which is completely opposite to what you see on TV, where many politicians of all political stripes seem to be very self-serving and they want all the credit. So it's, <laughs> for me, I didn't care if I got the credit or not, which is, I worked to my disadvantage a little bit come next election time. It's like, what are you ever doing? I said, you, I did this, I did that. And they said, oh, you didn't do that, somebody else. And it's like, man, this is just not right. But in any event, those are the things that really you bring from the military into the civilian world. Get the mission done. It doesn't matter who gets credit as long as the mission gets accomplished. And I've always been like that in the businesses that I've owned, in my personal life, in politics. And I, I think I've been able to influence some other people up in the General Assembly uh, on that. Um, I think that a lot of folks who might be listening might have an incorrect opinion of many politicians because what you see on TV, for the most part, is 
incredibly distorted. They'll talk to you for 10 minutes and then they'll take uh, 10 seconds of the words that you say that you kind of stumble over your words a little bit and they put that out there. They look for the people who are fighting and you know, this and that and the other thing. And it's like, there's a lot of good folks up in Raleigh on both sides of the aisle, uh, all stripes, colors, political affiliations, whatever. In fact, in the House, I looked at it, I haven't looked at it lately, but two years ago, I looked at it and it's like over 85% of the votes were overwhelmingly one way or the other. You know, we have 120 members. I'm talking like you have 90 to 100 members for the bill and, you know, 10, 15 against it. You don't get there when you just have a slim majority on either side. So that never gets reported. Um, it, it's, it's just interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the, the bills that do get reported are the ones that are very partisan and have those slim majorities. And uh, but one, you know, there's a couple of bills that we'll talk about in which there was bipartisan support for, including some of them that you championed yourself, uh, House Bill 951. But we'll get to that in just a minute. So as a lot of our listeners may know, you've been a strong proponent of clean energy development here in the state of North Carolina. So was energy a part of your initial platform or an issue that you were running on when you first came to office in the state? Not at all. I was, uh, everything I knew about energy is summed up in this next paragraph. Energy comes from some magical place when you flip the light switch on, the lights go on, and when you turn the light switch off, the lights go off. And that was about it. Oh, oh, wait a minute, there's more. To get my car to go, I had to go to the gas station and fill up with gas. And when the light goes red and it says, E, I got to put more gas in it. That was about it. To be entirely honest with you, I was about taxes. And, and just as a segue on this and a kind of pat on my own back, in the last 10 years, I've been one of the chairs and then senior chairs of the House Finance Committee working on tax reform. And over the last 10 years, the state of North Carolina taxpayers, you know, the, uh, everybody pays tax, personal taxes and corporate taxes have retained more than 219 billion dollars instead of paying it to the state. And some people say, well, that's because you're robbing the state and you're not paying it. It's like, no, 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 no. What it is, is you can spend your money better than government can tell you how to spend the money. It, it, it just is. So getting back to energy, uh, I told you what I knew about energy. And yeah, I'm a conservative Republican. So there's a couple of publications that you read about where the Republican viewpoint is, just like the Democrats have their publications and channels they listen to. So I, I came up there with a, I would say at the time, a standard Republican viewpoint of renewable energy. And that was back in 2012, 13, that uh, if it had to stand on its own two legs, it would fold. Uh, you couldn't, it, it was useless because when the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, uh, it's not going to work and it costs way too much money and it's just a boondoggle. And this was not that long after Solyndra and you know all those other companies went under. So that, that's what I thought. So uh, I had a lobbyist uh, come to my office and she asked me, what do you think about renewable energy? And I said, well, here's what I think. And I told her exactly what the talking points were. And she said, well, that's interesting. Would you like some information about solar energy? I said, sure. Uh, and she gave me some information and I asked her some questions and she answered a couple and couldn't answer the other ones. And she said, would you like to know more? I said, yeah. And so uh, I started looking at what she had given me and, um, it was like, well, this is interesting. This isn't quite what the talking points I just told her were. <laughs> Obviously she knew that. 
So I did some research and then I talked to the uh, utility companies lobbyists and said, I got a question on this solar stuff. I mean, I was told this and it, oh, no, no, it's not that, it's not that. So now I have two opposing different viewpoints on something that I that was already settled in my head, but now it's kind of unsettled. So it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, it's very easy to be secure in your own ignorance when you think you know everything. It's like, oh, I, I know it. So I started asking more questions and, and I called that lobbyist back and asked her for some more information. I'm on this pretty much six month journey of exploration of energy. And uh, <laughs> what I come to find out was, was that the things that I thought were true were not true. And the things that the utility companies were telling me, they shaded it their way. And it was really a, a good intro to lobbyists and issues and a great teaching point for me that don't think you know everything about something, you really have to look at both sides. So when I did look at both sides, it, I clearly saw the benefit in solar back in 2013. And it, it did cost more then, it absolutely did. But it just made sense. And I could see where the technology was going. Like I've got two engineering degrees, one from West Point, one from UT Texas at Austin. So I, I looked at it from that viewpoint. I looked at it from the money viewpoint because that's one of my driving things being a, a finance guy. And uh, it just made sense. And, and it was all because uh, I was willing to listen to somebody and actually had a bit of an inquiring mind to go do some research on my own. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I hear this a lot from from folks that are outside of the the energy sphere, right? You don't really think about energy, it's kind of just a luxury that's there, right? Like you mentioned at the beginning, you turn the light switch on and, and there you go. And I think for a lot of folks outside of this space, that's what's most important is to make sure that we have that reliability and dependability. Um, but I think more and more folks are turning on to the idea that they want the grid to be cleaner as we progress and advance uh, in that area as well. So can you talk about just overall stepping back a little bit, about the overall approach or perspective that the General Assembly has when it comes to energy and how has this changed over the course of your tenure in the legislature? And that's a great question because when I first got there, there were only two people who didn't think like I thought with the standard talking points. One was Chuck McGrady, I don't know if you remember him, and he had been a, he was a great Republican. He had been a former state chairman of uh, what, Sierra Club and the other was Ruth Samuelson. And they were kind of like off in a box on their own when it came to energy because everybody was like, ah, solar, that's no good, blah, 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 blah. And now all of a sudden then I come along and <laughs> I'm talking to them. And it's like, hey, can I join you guys? <laughs> so they said, sure, come on in. And it, it took a while. One of the my motivating factors really getting into it so much was because of my military experience back in... 2000, I want to say three, four, something like that. Uh, then President Bush uh, came out with a mandate to, or Department of Defense when he was president, came out with a mandate that by, I think it was 2025, that 25% of all non-essential energy on military posts would come from renewable energy. It's like, that was the Republican administration. Uh, you know, the military isn't really looked at at least back then, as being a real liberal organization. So at the time I was first elected, there's this thing called BRAC, Base Realignment and Closure. And 
Fort Bragg, largest military base in the world, sitting right here in my district. Uh, I felt incumbent upon me to try and protect them. I'd been involved when I was on active duty, seeing one, how one of those went down. I still had friends in the Pentagon, so I know how it goes. And without getting into long details about military says, here's what we need to fight, how many wars the government says we need to fight. And then it goes to the political overlords, all the appointed and elected folks in DOD and the president. And then they, they look at it through the political lens. So President Obama was president. You know, if you looked at the political realities at the time in North Carolina, uh, we had taken over, we Republicans had taken over the House and the Senate. Pat McCrory had been elected governor. Like, I know how these things go in D.C. If you're going to cut force strength to save money, you're, you're not going to do it in places like uh, New York, you know, or California, or really blue states. You'd probably cut in a red state. And I had that verified with my friends who were working in the Pentagon at the time. So I, I looked at bases across the country at who had actually made any attempt to do this 25% renewable energy thing. A lot of them had, but Fort Bragg hadn't really done anything. So I was trying to look at ways to, to get them into the game so they would look better in the next brack that might come because that's my job to protect my constituents and if Fort Bragg here closed or we lost there's 50,000 troops and if we lost 10 or 20,000 of them that would be a huge smoking crater uh, where Fayetteville used to be so um, that that's that's how I got involved with it you know and, and Fort Bragg has caught a, a bunch of news recently with I, I know they had just uh turned on a 1.1 megawatt floating solar farm on their facility. And, you know, the military, it has seen renewable energy as, you know, an important component to energy security and cutting our reliance on foreign oil and energy sources that are sourced overseas. So I'm glad that we're kind of making that connection there. Oh, yeah. And, and here's an interesting fact for the listeners is the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense is the largest consumer of energy in the world. Uh, now just think about that for a minute, and it takes up a huge percentage of DOD's budget. So if you can save a percent or two percent on the energy that DOD uses, uh, you're a hero. If you could save 10 or 20 percent, I mean, you're going to get, uh, I don't know what you're going to get. You know, I'll give you the Presidential Medal of Freedom or something. <laughs> but uh, it's really important because when government should be very careful about how they spend taxpayer dollars. And I say should, I've always tried to be like that. But we've all seen the stories about the $20,000 toilet seats and the $5,000 hammers and all that jazz. So it's, you know, if, if we can help the government at all levels be more responsible uh, and save money on their energy bills, it's important. And if you look at the state of North Carolina, North Carolina, the state, we consume a lot of energy. The whole UNC system, you know, we've got state highway patrol, we've got all these state buildings going around everywhere, which is, I've always, once I really got an energy, the easiest dollar to save is the one you don't spend. And, and that leads directly into efficiency. So building efficiency, very important to me. And then it's the cost of generation and right now, solar is the least cost generation. So why wouldn't anybody be for it? So your original question was, 
has the legislature changed over time? And the answer to that is yes, it has. The folks in both the House and the Senate have come around more to my way of thinking. Uh, and the way I couch it is in terms of cost. I want to save money and provide services to the state, uh, you know, at the least cost and to be the most respectful of taxpayers' money. And that's something everybody can agree to, whether Republican or Democrat. If you start off saying, well, I want to save the polar bears and the penguins are going to drown because there's too much water, whatever you're going to say. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. Well, let me rephrase it. There's some people want to hear that, but nobody's going to act on it in a policy setting. Yeah, I, I'll rephrase that too, because apparently at the national level, a lot of that's being acted on. But at least that hasn't taken over North Carolina yet. So, and that's when we talk about the bills, that's how we got both Republicans and Democrats in both chambers to go along with it. You mentioned energy efficiency. You know, I want to I want to hone in on that for a second. If I'm not mistaken, you were a sponsor or at least a, a champion of House Bill 245, which is focused on reducing energy consumption for state-owned buildings. Is is that correct? And what would see that was my bill. That's right, and it didn't pass unfortunately because it passed the House, but I, I couldn't get my uh, friends and colleagues in the Senate to go along with it. I guess I wasn't persuasive enough uh, on that, or ran out of time, or something. But but basically. If you look at the stock of buildings that the state owns and is responsible for, they range in size from, you know, 2,000 square foot shacks somewhere to hundreds of thousands of square feet, huge buildings. And they also range in eight difference in ages. Uh, if you're ever in Raleigh, you've seen that the state has put money into redoing the administration building and the uh, insurance building and things like that. There's a heck of a lot of buildings across the state, a lot of them on college campuses that are very old and very energy inefficient. So what the bill basically does, it, it first wanted the Department of Administration to do an inventory of all the state's buildings, starting with the oldest and the largest first, because you're going to get your biggest return in energy savings on that. Look at them. Are we going to keep the buildings or if we're going to keep them? They're due to be re rejuvenated. I mean, how are we going to do that? And there's this uh, type of thing called performance engineering where you take into account the cost of maintaining the building. So generally, if you building X, um, you need to, to redo it. Let's say it's going to cost $10 million to redo it to today's standards. Okay, generally on a energy efficient performance engineering, instead of $10 million, you might spend $11 million. But over the next 30 years of the building, you're going to save, I'm just throwing numbers out there, 10 million in energy cost, avoided cost. Going back to what I said earlier, the easiest money dollar to make is one you don't spend. So you, you got to break through the bureaucrats who go for the lowest cost and have them factor in the future energy costs. Um, and, and it works. I mean, it, it absolutely works. All you got to do is look at the Empire State Building. Everybody knows what the Empire State Building is, right? Um, I forget what year it was. I think it was around 2004 or 5. Don't quote me on that. But somebody else bought the Empire State Building, did a total um, rebuild of the, you know, new windows, new this, new that, new HVAC systems. Uh, I forget the exact numbers, but it cost them like $20 million more than had they not done that. And that $20 million was... 
paid for itself in the first five years. And, and the building's going to be standing around for another 25 years or 30 years before I have to do it again. So the owner of the building saves money. The tenants save money. It's better for the environment. I mean, it's, there's no loser. There's no loser on that. Changing attitudes, bureaucratic attitudes, and somewhere in the legislature and some in the uh, administrative department where they, well, we don't need that. We just go with lowest cost. It's like, you know, if my head looks kind of flat because I beat it on a brick wall sometimes. It's, it's, it's just, it's really tough to change attitudes sometimes, but you got to be patient and you can't be an extremist in doing that. You just got to tell people the facts and show them the numbers. So I, I was, it, it's a great bill. I've tried it two sessions in a row, still haven't been able to get it through the Senate, but uh, hopefully next year somebody will pick it up and they'll have uh, some champion in the Senate that'll say, ah, I got a great idea. And then, and then it'll pass. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like the the only loser for that bill is is the taxpayer right now because they're not reaping the savings if that bill were to pass. I mean, I and I think you're right, but it's um, you know that government is the uh, stew pot of ideas, and sometimes the stew comes out good and everybody wins, and sometimes the stew just doesn't make it. You know? <laughs> So, so you also help to dispel the notion that clean energy is a partisan issue in the state. Can you talk a little bit more about why and how clean energy aligns with some of your conservative values? Absolutely. I mean, the, the base root of conservative is conserve. I mean, that, and that's it. And um, renewable energy does that. And it does it in a number of ways. And the, and the reason that we have a much larger following uh, among Republicans in the legislature, and I think across the state and the nation in general, is that people see that uh, renewable energy actually does save money. Uh, but then you run into things like the the Texas uh, event. Uh, remember that when it was real cold and the wind turbines froze up and everything else? And then, then you've got people who don't do their homework and they say, look, see, wind is horrible. If it's too cold, it doesn't work. Which is, I, I mean, I've heard that from U.S. senators, U.S. congressmen, and from all kinds of people telling me that. And you got to say, well, that's really interesting. Uh, what was happening to the wind turbines in Oklahoma, Iowa, Kansas, North and South Dakota, the same time they froze in Texas? And they go, what? I said, what happened to those wind turbines? And they say, I don't know. I I'll tell you what happened. They continued to spin. And you know why? Because they were winterized. That whole Texas thing has been blown out of proportion. It takes about $60,000, at least it did a year and a half ago when I looked at the numbers, to winterize a wind turbine. Uh, ERCOT in Texas didn't think they needed to do that, so they didn't. They were trying to save money, and then you get this once-in-a-century cold snap, and they froze. So it wasn't the fact that wind is a horrible source of energy or that it's inefficient and it's not going to work in the cold weather. It comes back to humans making a decision, trying to, to go with the least cost, and they got caught. And wait, there's more. Not only were wind turbines not winterized, the uh, natural gas pumping stations and all that infrastructure was not winterized yet. That also froze up. <laughs> and how many times have you heard that on the news? At the time, you didn't hear that. I mean, some of the listeners might be news to them when they listen to this. I don't know. But you have to know what you're talking about and, and not just have talking points. The, the talking point people is what I call them. Those are the people up to the legislature who come to demonstrate and they got a 
three by five piece of uh, billboard out there and they go, oh, you know, they walk back and forth and they got their talking point. I just made it a point just to go out and ask them. It's like, that's ah, an interesting time. I'm, I'm a conservative Republican. I'm in the house. Tell me about your point right there. Oh, they got somebody they want to blow up. So they read their sign to me and said, well, and why do you say that? And they can never come back. It was just it, very, that part was actually very frustrating to me and still is. You can have a different opinion than mine, but if all you have is a talking point, don't waste my time. And, you know, I, I actually was just a part of a conversation earlier this week with a, a new station out in the Wilmington area. And there were concerns from, from residents out there about offshore wind development and those turbines freezing up in a similar manner to what we saw in, in ERCOT. And we had that same conversation where it was important to point out that this was not exclusive to wind generators out in Texas, but it really affected the entire uh, electricity generation market, including natural gas, nuclear, all across the board. And, and so it's, it's important to have that context when you talk about these issues beyond that, that talking point that you just mentioned. So aside from being supportive of this field, uh, just in general, you've also you know, walk the walk and help to champion a number of bills down at the legislature uh, focused on on energy, including House Bill 589, 951. So let's start with 589. Can you talk a little bit more about the impetus for this bill back in 2017 and the impacts that it's had on the energy landscape in the state since then? You know, again, you have to go back in time to look at what the cost of solar was and where it was going. And there weren't quite as many Republicans, at least in favor of solar at the time. So it, it comes down to the cost for ratepayers as the legislature figures out policy that we're going to tell the state to take. It was a cost thing. Cost of solar was coming down. Uh, batteries were just on the horizon. The last section of House Bill 589 it directed the study be done on storage batteries, utility scale storage batteries. The earliest uh, projections at the time when we did 589 was that utility scale storage batteries would come online in 2030. That didn't happen. It was like uh, 2019, they're starting to put these things out there. So technology races forward so much. And this is another theme when I give talks is technology and policy should go hand in hand. Technology is always going to be the first adopter. And then the policymakers have to look at the technology and figure out, is the technology here to stay? Is it going to be useful for a long time? Will it actually save people money? And if you come to the conclusion, yes, then you have to change your policy, what it is, to adopt to the new technology. And that's what 589 in a nutshell was, it was acknowledging that uh, solar, for the most part, was dealt with in that bill, was coming along, costs were falling, but our policy was outdated. So how do we get our policy to date for what was going on at the time we passed it and for the next five years? And to sell it on the Republican side, it was about cost to save money, which it did. It was passed in 2017. It was projected to save like a billion dollars in the first 10 years. By 2021, it had already saved $350 million. And it didn't, it didn't mean people's bills went down, but they didn't rise near as fast. 
which is a savings, uh, had, as compared to the case where had we done nothing, then people would have been paying even more. So, I mean, $350 million in like three years, I, I'm pretty doggone proud of that, to be honest with you. I mean, I, <laughs> it was good. So, so, so that was really the impetus on 589. So you, you talked about the intersection between technology and policy. And I find that really fascinating because in House Bill 951 last year, I think that was the crux of a lot of that bill and part of the decision to uh, grant a lot of the authority on technology decisions to the North Carolina Utilities Commission. So to step back really quick, Let's let's talk about 951. I know you helped to move this bill forward and we're in the trenches with helping to broker negotiations between all the parties involved. And so can you talk about the process of negotiating this bill and why it was necessary to continue advancing the the energy conversation in the state? Yeah, things change every day. I mean, we're right now the country's in this period of massive inflation. We have a European land war going for the first time since the Second World War. We have conflict in Asia. We have all these things that affect the economy and energy prices and this and that and the other thing. So, and then you have the effects of technology. You know, like I mentioned earlier, the study that said utility scale storage batteries would be online by 2030 at the earliest, they're already out there. I I mean, they're out there, they're doing peak shaving, they're doing all kinds of things that help reduce costs for rate payers, uh, which is what we want. Because what made America, one of the things that made America great is that we have had the lowest cost for energy in the world. I mean, and that's just a fact. That's not a John Soko conclusion. That's been a fact for decades. So to maintain our competitiveness in the world, we have to keep the cost of energy down. That's what we want to do in 951. We, we've had these gas pipelines that we've got in the state, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which I was in favor of, eventually got pulled or, you know, canceled because of numerous reasons. So when you look at the energy mix, it's not just, is it just solar or nuke or gas or or what is it? What's the best mix? When we're in the house with all these different viewpoints, we were trying to go down the road to definitely schedule definitive closures of some of the coal plants that Duke runs. And Duke was on board. They just wanted to be compensated for it because, and I don't blame them, because they still had remaining economic life. So we said, we're going to close this, we're going to do this, and this is going to be replaced by gas here and solar here. And then uh, by and large, Democrats didn't like that. They wanted more solar. Then it got to this thing about, well, we need more solar. We don't need gas. We don't need this and blah, blah, blah. So we got a lot of technicalities in uh, rate making done, which remained unchanged when over to the Senate. And then we got to the point where we just couldn't resolve the issue. We sent it over to the Senate and uh, I continued to work with Republican and Democrat senators and with the governor's office uh, when it was over in the Senate. And then they eventually came and put the power with the Utilities Commission, which I was kind of in favor with from the beginning. Yeah, I'm one out of 120, and that's how that works sometimes. You don't always get what you want, um, just like that Rolling Stones song. You don't always get what you want. If you try hard sometimes, you might just get what you need. So anyway, I think that was the right solution. 
And it really feeds into what I talked about earlier, technology, technology racing forward so much. So there's fear, unfounded, I think, on both sides of the aisle that, uh, well, it's because Governor X appointed all of his party that it's going to be, they're just going to do all solar. And then, you know, somebody else comes in, oh, they're going to all gas. And it's like, in my dealings with the uh, utility commission and the public staff, I found them all to be very level-headed and want the same things I want, which is least cost, best service, reliability, all the things that everybody wants. So I feel fairly confident that the process being fought out at the Utilities Commission, uh, everybody isn't going to like it, uh, but it'll probably be a, a good uh, solution as we move through the next few years. You talk about you know the the U.S. having some of the lowest energy costs in the world. It's also important to note that North Carolina has some of the lowest energy costs in the country, and absolutely. And so, you know, I think what this bill also helps to to do is is diversify our generation mix while also insulating ourselves from some of the risks that we're seeing in eastern parts of Europe and in other parts of the world that we've been dependent on energy for for so long, and at the same time. Uh, putting, you know, emission reduction mandates on the books for, you know, the first state in the Southeast. And I think that's, that's a huge win as part of this bill. And as you mentioned, the carbon plan proceedings are playing out right now at the Utilities Commission. And so we'll see what that looks like in its final form by the end of this year. But this was a, a huge step forward for the energy industry in North Carolina. Uh, it, it really was. And there's two other parts of that bill I'd like to mention. One was the last section, um, I forget what the name of it was, but we finally called it Blend and Extend. And again, go back in time to when solar facilities were put online in 2010, 2012 with a 20-year contract. The cost per megawatt was in the 70s, maybe even $80 per megawatt. And now you can generate high 20s, low 30s per megawatt. So from the utilities viewpoint, it's like, why are we paying, continuing to pay? Well, you're in a contract you got to. So... We put in there that uh, and it is a private contract between a solar developer and the utility. It's like renegotiate that, lower the rate, extend the term of the contract. So overall, ratepayers win. I think it's huge. I don't know I, how that's still in process. And the other part, which uh, we hammered out in the House, and not a sentence or a period change when it went to the Senate, was Section Two, which talked about. Um, performance-based rate making and all these other things that to me was the real guts of the bill. A lot of people like the man, you know, the goals of re carbon reduction. All that. I say, ah, I, you know, okay, fine. I'm fine with that. But the real, in my opinion, um, guts of the bill was in section two, where for over a century, we have told the utilities that we'll guarantee your rate of return. You show us how much you spend on capital investment, and we'll give you your rate of return. That's the incentive for the utilities to do nothing but capital investments, or they can't make the money. And I'm not blaming them for that. If I was a shareholder of theirs, I'd tell them to do the same thing. So with this, when you have performance-based measures, performance-based rate making, PBR, there's a whole list of things in there that they can do and still get compensated for without having to build capital projects. 
you know, if you can uh, increase your reliability. I, I mean, I, there's like a whole list of things in there, but it, 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 it allows the utility to really have a model for rate making for this century, not the last century. And I think I'm the only one that ever talks about that. <laughs> but, but I think it's really, really, really important. It, and it is really important. I think, you know, the, uh, a big topic of conversation in the energy industry over the past three, four, five years is how do you better align the utility interests with the ratepayer interests, especially in light of when you see in places like South Carolina or in Georgia, where, you know, the utility was incentivized to build out billions and billions of dollars of new nuclear plants that never came online and the ratepayers were, you know, stuck with that bill, right? So, how do you further align the interests of both ratepayers and the utility so ratepayers have uh, lower energy bills and the utility is still able to make money? Right. Because if you can't make money, there's no energy. And my basic uh, knowledge of how to get the lights on won't work anymore when I flip the switch on. <laughs> so, so talking about, let's, let's hone in on clean energy just a little bit here. Um, how or what benefits have you seen clean energy deliver to constituents within your district? Well, that's an easy one because um, it, it wasn't anything I did. The market here in Cumberland County did it. We've got some fairly flat land. We've got a number of large utility scale facilities here. One's, I think, 79 megawatts. Another one's 81 megawatts. And there's a, a scattering of five megawatt facilities all over the place. And because it's changed the taxable value of the land from agriculture to you know, it's use now. Uh, Cumberland County, I forget what the exact number is, but it's over a million dollars a year in revenue coming from that and increased property taxes. And if you look out in Eastern Carolina, which to date, most, uh, a majority of these has been because land is flatter. And anyway, um, a lot of these solar facilities have been constructed in counties that are tier one counties that really aren't generating sales tax revenue or property tax. They're having problems building new schools, repairing county roads, keeping their counties operating. So if all of a sudden you're infusing a million, two, three million of dollars into a poor county that they can use, I mean, it's like you rub the magic lamp and a genie came out and said, here's a couple million dollars. What do you want to do with it? And it's like, I mean, it's, it's almost like that. So it's been a boon to a lot of low wealth counties uh, in a lot of ways and for Cumberland County specifically um, for that. It's, it's interesting on a lot of polling on clean energy um, and conservatives for clean energy. If you go to their website, you can look up the latest ones. It's like every demographic group uh, except white males over the age of 65, um, for some reason, I guess, hey, I'm in that demographic, but I, I'm, I'm for it. But anyway, every demographic except that by an overwhelming margin supports clean energy. It, and it doesn't mean that they hate gas or they hate nuke or anything else. It means that they support clean energy. And if you ask them, they have a variety of reasons. Some people want to save the polar bears. Some people want to be responsible. Some people just want to pay lower bills. I'm in that group. Policy affects everyone. Good policy doesn't get the publicity it should. Bad policy does. And everybody talks about bad policy and says, that guy did when it's like, you know, 
just just start looking at all the mailers coming in your um, mailbox for the next election. So I again go back that as an elected official, it's incredibly important to do the homework, understand how things work in the real world and the interplays of energy with financial markets, with energy markets, with environmental concerns. You have to understand that, come to the best policy you can, because that's what people want. So let's talk about your your own sort of political career and trajectory. So I'm sure as a lot of listeners know, you've announced that this year's session was your last as a representative in the North Carolina House. So what's next for you? That was a decision that was kind of forced on me um, by circumstances. A few days over a year ago, with the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and U.S. forces, um, being a retired military officer and having known many, many folks who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, it just hit this chord in me that I cannot let this pass. And I was going to run for Congress, and I, in fact, did file for Congress. Then due to all the uh, wonders of the courts and the redistricting, the district changed like five times and it had me placed against an incumbent who's actually doing a pretty good job. So I withdrew from that. Uh, my house district had been uh, changed so much that, uh, look, I'm a hard worker and I think I'm a, uh, have done a lot, but sometimes demographics of things, you have to live in the real world and look at the world as it is. So it was a point do I want to run for that district or not. And I decided not to, and after a lot of prayer and reflection, and I, I really think it was the right move to not. And then when I was coming to that decision, people were going like, you got to do something. It's like, why? <laughs> like, I got a day job. I, I'm fine. And I said, well, you have all this knowledge. You've done so much for the county. You've done this, you've done that. And I said, well, you know, I said, you need to run for a, a countywide that large county commissioner slot. And I said, me? Look, I'm a state policy guy. I was going to want to go to Congress. I said, no. And then there are different issues that folks were telling me about things that were really in my wheelhouse, financial things, flood prevention, and uh, just river maintenance. And that just, there's a lot of pollution efforts. I mean, the whole Gen X thing, I don't know. A lot of people don't even know what that is. It's a pollutant that took over for PFAS produced by a chemical factory here, right in my district. Uh, so groundwater contamination. So I've been big into that. And there's there's a lot of work to be done locally. And I've really, locally on the Gen X, the PFAS stuff, I don't know what everybody else knows about it, but I know I know a hell of a lot about it. So there's, there's things that I can do with the knowledge that I gained in Raleigh that I think will really benefit people in my county. And that's why I'm running for county commissioner to try and uh, not just take all that knowledge I've learned over the past 10 years and just, I don't know, write a book. I'm not a big writer, so I don't know. So that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run for county commissioner. Uh, I think it's looking pretty good so far. It's My, my county's my county, and we'll see if they uh, want me to continue or not. If they do, great. And if they don't, well, that's fine too. Well, you know, we're we're excited for this next next career move for you and, and hope that you'll take – a lot of the uh, the clean energy knowledge and support that you've you've brought from the legislature to this new role, uh, should you be elected as county commissioner, 
But you know, thank you so much again, uh, Representative Zoka, for joining us this morning on the the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, we really appreciate everything that you're doing for the clean energy industry in North Carolina. Well, well thanks for the opportunity to uh, share some uh, a few war stories and a couple of ideas, and hopefully the listeners will maybe get one or two nuggets out of this. But uh, thank you so much. My key takeaway from today's episode is the bipartisan nature of clean energy. As Representative Zoka pointed out, renewables at their core align with conservative values of conserving, reducing consumer costs, and minimizing dependence on foreign energy sources. We saw that come into play last year when Republican legislative leaders reached an agreement with the Democratic governor's office to ink a bill that would change the face of energy in North Carolina for years to come. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 77 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right. That's it. See y'all later.